Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. There's this word in our generation, my generation, which has been affectionately deemed the millennials. Many of you are a part of that. This word is so beloved, so cherished, so protected that we have written songs about it, we've developed emojis for it, and we use it whenever we possibly can in various abbreviations. And that word can be summarized in this word, maybe. Maybe. The shrug emoji, the IDK, however you phrase it, the word my generation has protected and cherished is this word, maybe. The word neither means yes or no. It doesn't make a commitment. Instead, it allows you to go into the milieu and the mediocrity of a lack of commitment, allowing us to either jump in or back out, depending on how we're feeling the minute before the decision is made. Have you been there? You invite somebody over for dinner, their reply, I don't know, maybe, right? Coffee, that might work, right? Maybe. You've been there trying to set up an appointment, an event, a party, and the Evite has yes, no, or maybe. And then you've been on the other side of that where you have used the word maybe to protect yourself. Because you're like, look, I don't got to say yes or no right now. I can be that solid maybe, not hurt their feelings. And depending on how I'm feeling that day, back out or jump in. I think this response has only taken shape as technology has expanded. Because when you think about it, the advent of the cell phone text messaging, even the sharing locations thing, even telling each other where we are on social media, as that has continued to progress where we know where everyone is at all times and we know everyone's on their phone all the time, that we all of a sudden have this option uh, to say maybe. I remember a time, and some of you don't, which is sad, but I consider myself an elder millennial. Uh, And I remember a day, children, (laughs) when there were no cell phones. It was a dark time, I know. (laughs) I remember my dad, we'd go to the mall, and he'd be like, come here. He'd be like, what's up? He's like, come here. Listen, I'm going to be at that fountain at 5 p.m. I leave at (laughs) 5.05. It's like, son, get here. You see that fountain? I leave at 5.05. Do you want to ride home? I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. He's like, all right, you go do your thing, okay? Get out of here. Go to Sabaro. Get yourself a slice. <laughs> if you're not at this fountain at 5 o'clock, I'm gone, <laughs> right? That was life before cell phones. You see, you would, you would call someone. You'd say, dinner at 7? They go, yeah. By the time you hung up that phone, they were either going to be there or not going to be there. And if they didn't show up, they were just lost, It used to happen. It used to happen where people were just lost. (laughs) Like you would go to somewhere and you would show up and they wouldn't be there and you go, huh, I don't know. I have no idea why they're not here. (laughs) But as technology has advanced, we've been able to say, I might be there. And then we'd live text updates as we're on our way, right? When you're in your Uber or your Lyft, you can say, this is my ETA. You know, send it to people. And so we now have this ability to get out from under the commitments that we made. And beyond just the personal, the word maybe kind of goes across kind of larger cultural streams, if you notice this. My parents' generation, which many of you are a part of, 
Many of you worked the same job for 30 years. No one does that anymore. To work at a tech company for two years, you're a veteran. In the valley, it's like, you've been here 18 months? Wow, dude, show me around. You know, like, <laughs> there's just no commitment in the job sector. Like, because our generation likes to just get out from under things and go see the next thing. How about education? Do you know that the average college student, many of you are college students in our church, the average college student changes their major five times? Yeah, I changed my major three times, and I was below average. I was like, sweet. I'm a committed young person because I changed my major three times. Yeah. Or, or, or how about just in consumer life? You know, if you don't have a seven-day trial for your product, it's not a product. Like, if you don't have a seven-day trial, why, why do we do seven-day trial, 30-day trial of Hulu? Why do we have that? So that we can get out from under any commitment. Ah, try the gym out for 10 days, pretend to work out, buy all the clothes, and then leave yeah. with no money. I don't got to spend a dime. Just keep doing these seven-day trials at all the different gyms. I don't pay a gym membership, right? Like, that's how we try to get out from under all of these commitments. You see, here's the thing, though, about all of these streams and culture is that we no longer, we see, people think that our generation is scared of commitments. That's not the truth. This generation, is, it's not that we have a problem making commitments. We have a problem keeping them. Yeah, see, that's, that's the, the problem. We are making commitments left and right. Sign up for this, go to that, say that, that I might be there, right? Like, all these things are like making declarations that we have some language around getting out of, if we can get out of it. And so we don't have a problem making commitments. We have a problem keeping them. I love thousands and thousands of years ago, in the ancient Hebrew literature, the wisdom literature of your Bible in the Old Testament, it predicted this. This is not just a generational thing. This is a human thing. Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many will say they are loyal friends, but who can find one who is truly reliable? Yeah. Keeping your word, a firm yes or a no, a commitment, is an issue of integrity and faithfulness. Listen, to do what you said you would do consistently over a long period of time is the mark of a great life right? To consistently do what you said you would do over a long period of time, it is the mark of a great life, and it is the mark of a kind of life Jesus is going to try to invite us into. Jesus is going to declare this kind of life upon us, that we can consistently do the things we said we would do over a long period of time. And this scripture, this, we have a lot stacked up against us today. Not only the things I mentioned of technology and culture, but man, some of you struggle with betrayal in your life. And some of you wrestle with anxiety. You wrestle with depression. And making commitments, this is going to bring up, Jesus is going to bring up difficult things that I don't want to ignore, but I want you to know he has grace for you this morning. He has love for you this morning in this commandment. That those that struggle in the area of making commitments, whether it's your own doing, or it's the result of something you suffer from, God has grace for all of us in this command. Look at Matthew 5, verse 33, as we continue to march through the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says. It'll be on the screen. It's in your notes. Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, 
You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. In order to best understand this passage, I'm going to try to show you the difference between our word and God's word. And when I say our word and when I say God's word, I don't say God's word in the sense of like scripture. I mean in his promises, his commitment. When I say I give you my word, what's the difference between that and when God says he'll give us his? And how can that help us obey this steep command? First, we have to recognize this. Our word is flimsy. Our word is flimsy. I think it's up there. There we go. Yeah. Our word is flimsy. It's weak. We go back and forth. Jesus continues using the same rhetorical device in this section as he has in the previous sections we've studied in the last couple of weeks on anger, divorce, lust, all these passages we preached on in the last three weeks in Controversial Jesus series. Jesus starts it this way. You have heard that it was said to those of old. And he starts to quote. And as these passages we've studied in the series, Jesus either directly quotes Old Testament scripture or references it in some way. And why he's doing it is to not lower the bar to say, oh, uh, this is what they said, but I'm going to give you something easy. No, no, no. He actually raises the bar. He says, this is what they've said in the past. This is the Old Testament teaching. And it's not that he discards it. He says, this is really the heart of it. So he says, hey, you've heard it said that murder is a sin, but he says actually angers the sin within the sin, right? He gets to the heart of the teaching. He says adultery. Yes, adultery is wrong. He doesn't discard that. He just says, you know what's actually at the heart of adultery is lust, right? And today in the teaching on commitments, he's saying it's not about swearing and oath-taking and all the cultural stuff that we're going to maybe get into a little bit as much time as we have in this passage. It's not really about the oath-swearing and about the vow-making. It's actually about deceit. Deceit. What is deceit? It's concealing or misrepresenting the truth. And just like Jesus has taught us we have a propensity to hold on to bitterness and be angry, the same way we have the uh, ability to objectify people in lust, the same way we have those sins in us, we also have the sin to conceal and misrepresent the the truth. That's why Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely, but he says, I tell you to not even take an oath. Where's he getting these Old Testament scriptures. Well, there's a couple of them. Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 23, Ecclesiastes 5. He kind of puts all these together. Look at Leviticus 19, 12. This is in the Torah, the original five books of the the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures. You shall not swear by my name, this is God, by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Look at uh, Deuteronomy 23, 21. This will sound a lot like Jesus, by the way. If you make a vow to the Lord, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you'll be guilty of sin. Look at 22. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. In other words, if you don't vow, you won't have to worry about breaking the vow and therefore not sinning. So just don't vow. Look at 22, though. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord. Look at voluntarily. God's like, I didn't make you do it. But once you say it, 
you'd better do it, right? Voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what is promised with your mouth. Ecclesiastes 5.4, this will also sound like Jesus. This is not in the first five books of the Bible, but is in the ancient wisdom literature of the Bible, Ecclesiastes. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he, God, has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay it. Sounds similar to Jesus. Jesus is simply getting to the heart of the Old Testament scriptures. They are not in contradiction to his teaching, but in support of it. Jesus is doing what any good Bible teacher would do. He's revealing the true meaning. He's teaching the scriptures. And from those passages from the Torah and from the wisdom literature, first five books of the Bible, the wisdom literature of the Bible, in those spaces and places and everywhere in between and after those passages, all we get is story after story after story of people breaking their vows. The Old Testament is littered with examples of people destroying their covenants. I don't even have time to go through all of them, but I have a good summary verse because the prophets talk about it a lot. Here's Hosea 10 verse 4. He just says this about the people of Israel. They, people of Israel, people of God, they utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. Like there just becomes a point where you just go, man, the more and more you try to give an oath or pronounce an oath, the more and more you convince yourself of your own sin. You see the strange thing about oaths and promises and swearing or whatever, the strange thing about this is it doesn't strengthen our word, it weakens it. Look at John Stott. Swearing, oath-making, is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the very existence of oaths is the proof that there are such things as lies. If lying were unknown, there would be no need for oaths. If you're still confused, let me put it this way. If I say to you, I promise I'll be there at six o'clock, doesn't that reveal the fact that me just saying I'll be there at six o'clock is weak? Right? If you have to say, I swear to God, I'll do this or I'll do that. If you have to say that, doesn't it just mean that whenever you say, I'll do this or do that, can't stand on its own? Therefore, the vow that you've made just supports the fact that your own word is weak. That's what, the gospel, that's what these writers are getting at. That's what the Bible's trying to get at. And the Pharisees, who are the scholars of these scriptures and the, the biggest leaders in the time of the religion that Jesus was a part of and a major opponent to him in his ministry, they had taken this idea of swearing oaths and they complicated it. As they always do, they complicated it in order to work around their selfish desires and deceitful actions. So Jesus, when he says things like, don't take an oath by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, what is he saying? Well, the Pharisees would take these oaths by quote-unquote less holy things than God in order to get out from under any judgment from God. So they wouldn't swear to God or make an oath to God or vow to God. They would vow to heaven or they would vow to Jerusalem. It's like, I swear to Jerusalem, I will be there, or do this, or do that. And Jesus is saying, this is ridiculous. For you to be swearing by less holy things, you are not getting out from under God's commands. You see, the Pharisees were exploiting the commands of God and saying, if we don't use God's name, if we don't swear by God's name, then we'll be in the clear. Jesus later, 
in Matthew 23 has a complimentary, Matthew tries to repeat the teachings of Jesus at strategic times in his narrative. If you read the whole gospel, and if you're in our Bible reading plan, which I suggest to you, if you don't have it, where is it? Uh, right here. If you don't have this, we have these in the back. We have a gospels reading plan, 25 weeks in the gospels. And if you were reading this very week, you were actually in Matthew 23. And you can go there with me to see Jesus' complimentary teaching. Matthew 23, starting in verse 16, he gives woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, he pronounces a kind of judgment upon them. And I want you to look at this verse, uh, Matthew 23, 16 through 22. And just as it's on the screen, we don't need to go through all of it, but he, he calls them blind guides. He says, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple? See, he's, he goes on these other examples. He, people were swearing by gifts of the altar and not the altar and all these stipulations. And look at verse 21. And, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Here's Jesus's point. You cannot escape God. You can't be making all of these verbal stipulations that get you out from under God's presence. The Pharisees were invoking the word maybe. (laughs) Here's what I mean. They were using terminology that would allow them to get out from under the commitments they have made and still remain pure before God and their friends. How is that any different from what we do today? Using terminology that would allow you to get out from under any commitments and still remain pure before God and friends. Yeah, these... There's more similarities between the Pharisees and us. Did you know that there are some cultures and languages in the world that don't have a word for maybe? They don't have a word for perhaps. It's just yes or no. Jesus is saying, when you bail on your friends and you say it's for personal reasons, a vague, you know, uh, pronouncement to try to keep yourself pure from going back on it, He's saying, are are you doing the same thing? When you change jobs for professional reasons and you don't make things clear, when you break up with someone and you say, I just need to spend a little bit more time with God. (laughs) Oh, did that hit too close to home? Sorry. Uh, Didn't really land. Um, Yeah. You see, we say all these things instead of simply saying, I'm sorry, I can't work here. This environment is not good for my family and it's not good for me. And while I appreciate you as a boss, I can't do business here, right? We can't just sit with someone and say, you know what, I enjoyed our first date, but you know, I just didn't really connect with you and I'm sorry. Here's why. In our generation, all of what I just said is considered mean. People say this to me a lot, actually. You know, they're like, that's mean. I said, well, is it true? Because if it's, if it's not true, that's one thing. But if it's true, why are you not just saying what's true? Instead of using language to get out from under certain commitments and honesty so that you might remain pure in front of God and friends. Jesus says, no matter how hard you try, you cannot live apart from God's presence and God's truth. God is everywhere. You swear by heaven, he's there. You swear by earth, he's there. You swear by the temple, he's there. He says that to the Pharisees. And he says that to us today. All these consolations we make... They're actually revelations of our own deceitfulness. 
And Jesus exposes both the Pharisees and us for what we are, and this is the harsh truth. We are liars. Lying is one of those things that we don't want to admit to or cop to. In fact, increasingly in this day, we want to say that we stand for the truth. But the, the, the honest truth is, when we make these stipulations and these commitments and back away from these commitments and use these phrases that try to get us out from under it, we're revealing that we were never really committed to that in the first place. We are the Pharisees. We work in any way possible to try to hide behind that dark truth. Our word is flimsy. It's very difficult. Notice this through line in the controversial Jesus series. As you've heard Jesus say, anger is actually the issue. It's not murder, it's anger. Or adultery is not the issue, it's lust. Or today, it's not about oath or making a commitment or not making a commitment, it's about your deceit. He's saying this, by the time sin has manifested and we can see it, by the time sin has manifested, it's already been digested. By the time you can see the sin, adultery, it started with lust. No one commits adultery out of nowhere. Nobody commits adultery out of nowhere. Nobody stumbles into adultery. Anger, likewise, or murder, likewise. It's not like anybody just stumbles into murder, right? No, it's anger that has been fostered over a long period of time. Likewise, nobody just stumbles into a dishonest life. It's microfractions of small layers of deceit that we get away with and we just see how far we can get away with it and we keep going. By the time you see the sin, it's already been digested in your life. You see, this is why Jesus says this in Matthew 15, 11. He says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This is what defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Graphic image, but effective. 18, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. If you're in your real Bible, underline that. Out of the mouth, and it proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles a person, Jesus says. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery. Here they all are. Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's all the uh, Sermon on the Mount right there. We're just handling false witness and slander. And Jesus said, it's actually from the heart that those things come. By the time you've said the lie or broken the oath or that you say, I swear I'll be there, by the time it's manifested, it's already digested in your life. It's already been in your heart, percolated from your desires and your thoughts, and it's just now an action. But it's a strange and heartbreaking revelation that this is how broken we are. Slander and false witness. See, they, by the time we see the fruit and we back off of those commitments or we make that lie, by the time we can see the sin, it's already taken root. It's already taken root. I remember when I was first starting in ministry, I was like 19. I was an intern at this big church in Oregon, and I was interning for my youth pastor, Joel. And I was thinking, I don't even think he remembers this story, but man, it really stuck with me. Um, 
I was going to do announcements for this church uh, the, on this weekend. We were going to do a family worship service. So kind of like Awakening, like our youth group was meeting. Uh, we met every Sunday in its own service. And we were going to say, hey, no youth that Sunday. We're all going to be in the main service. And they were going to have me do announcements. Big church, like 2,000 people. I was 19. I was an intern. It's like my first stage time. I was feeling pretty good about myself. I was like, I'm going to make them laugh. I'm going to make them cry all in three minutes. You know, like <laughs> I was pumped about it. And Joel said, hey, you're my intern. Uh, I need you to communicate with the parents and the, and, the, and the leaders that there will not be any youth service and we're all going to be in the main service because what I don't want is all the people going to the youth room and then nobody's there and then they have to come back and they don't know what's going on. We need to communicate and be honest with people and let people know what's going on. So will you do that for me? I said, yes. And uh, come Wednesday night, we had a Wednesday night youth group. I said to all the leaders, hey, there's no uh, youth group this weekend and so there'll be family worship. But I failed to email the parents. I didn't do it. And on Thursday, before that Sunday, Joel said, hey, Chris, you gotten that thing with the parents and, and, the, and the leaders? Did you email them? Do they know that there's no service? I said, yes. Thinking from Thursday to Sunday, I'll do it. But from Thursday to Sunday, what was I obsessed about? The stage. I was obsessed with the three minutes I was given to give the announcements and to have my time in the spotlight because pastors always really like to be needed and loved, and so we love that. And so at a very early age, that sinful root was taking place. <laughs> and because I had communicated the, to the leaders but not the parents, guess what happened on Sunday? I'm, I'm pumped. I'm in the first row. I'm getting ready to do announcements, and tons of parents are going to the youth room, and there's no leaders. <laughs> and there's no, nothing there. The youth room's closed, and there's not even any leader to tell them what's going on over here. So there's a bunch of, like, confusion. Our youth group was, like, 200 kids. I mean, it was a disaster. And I gave the announcements and felt pretty good about myself. On Monday, Joel's like, hey, Chris, um, so you emailed the parents and the, student and the leaders? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, how come all the parents were lined up at the youth room wondering what was going on? I was like, Oh, yeah, I, I didn't, I told the leaders, but I didn't tell the parents, you know, I like backtrack, I like make all these stipulations. And man, what I loved about Joel's response to me and, and the way he was helping me was he wasn't mad that I didn't email the parents. He was mad that I told him a half-truth about it. Because he said, Chris, look, the stage your three minutes, that's not a big deal. It's like literally anyone can do that. <laughs> you hand someone with a charismatic personality a microphone, they'll figure it out. He goes, you know what not a lot of people can do? Keep their word. Joel knew that as a pastor... I would need to develop a level of integrity that was beyond any stage I ever got. And he was more concerned about my care for people than my performance for them. Because anybody can entertain. Anybody can be a charismatic personality. Anyone can work your job. Anyone can do what you do. Not many people can keep their word. The Proverbs question rings true. A truly reliable friend, who can find? You see, over my life, you may not believe this or whatever, but since that day, this has been a very difficult command for me to obey. 
so I'm a high achiever. Um, maybe you are too. Uh, a lot of us pastors are. We love to overcommit and overpromise because we not only like to achieve things and for people to like us, but we also love to feel needed. And so when people ask us for things, we often say we'll be there and we fail at it. And this has happened over my life as a pastor. I've had to learn the sad truth that sometimes I want people to like me more than I want to be honest with them. I want to do great things for God instead of small things for regular people. And over the whole of my ministry career, God has been teaching me the art of slowing down and remaining honest. What Joel knew and talked to me about was not the lie, but where the lie came from. By the time it had manifested, by the time I had gone back on my commitments, do you know what was already true in my heart, in my mind? I already decided the stage was more important than the people. That was simply a manifestation of the sin that was in my heart. You go, Chris, that's not a big deal. That's the thing. It is. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. The little things are actually big things. Because if you get away with that lie, if you get away with that half-truth, you'll continue to find where that line is. That's the nature of the human heart. That's how flimsy our word is. And that's also how strong God's is. Is that not only is our word flimsy, but the good news that I have learned through this teaching is that while our word is flimsy, God's word actually has grace. God's word, his promise to us, his commitment to us is nothing like our commitments to each other. That's the good news. God is nothing like Chris and I. God, look at Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Proverbs 19, 21. You can make many plans. I love this in the NLT. You can make all the plans you want, but the Lord's purposes will prevail. You keep doing what you do. God, his word stays true over and over again. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. He doesn't have what you have and what I have. You know what I have? I have a gap between what I say I will do and what I do. God doesn't have that gap. God literally, when he says it, it is done. Let there be light. And there was light. (laughs) In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. There is no separation between the word of God and the character of God. They are the same thing. See, we have a difference between my character and my word, which is why we need his help. How can God's commitment to us help us when we make and break our commitments to others? Well, there's this weird little moment in one of Paul's letters that has helped me tremendously with this. It's in 2 Corinthians 1. And Paul is talking about his travel plans to the Corinthians. He wrote the Corinthians. We only have two of the letters There could be as many as six or eight letters to the Corinthians. He references all these other letters and the two of them. We don't know. We just haven't found them. We don't know where they, uh, you know, they've they've been lost across archaeological history, like many actually sacred writings in scripture. Um, What we have before us is 2 Corinthians, where he's talking about this plan that he's making with the Corinthians. And he went kind of saying he would come visit them. Then he was like, I actually can't visit you. And he's updating them on his travel plans in 2 Corinthians 1. 
He says this, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? In other words, was I going back and forth? Was I going back and forth when I was telling you I'd come, then I said I couldn't come, now I'm saying I'm coming again? Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, he names his compatriots here, was not yes and no, but in him, in Jesus, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. That's a very important line. God establishes us with you in the yes of Christ and, and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I love this passage because it acknowledges circumstances. <laughs> Plans will change. Life happens. Like I said earlier, many of you, this digs even deeper than it has dug with me. Because some of you suffer from such deep anxiety and depression, and Paul acknowledges this. He says, look, circumstances will abound. I wanted to come see you, but I did have to cancel my plans. I wanted to be there, but I couldn't be. I'm sorry. But isn't the yes of Christ enough for the two of us when the plans change? Because the truth is, Paul's asking this, is there not grace for these situations? Is there not grace for us when our anxiety wells up so deeply we just can't show up? Isn't there grace for us when plans change, kids get sick, stuff happens? Isn't there grace for this? You see, Paul's acknowledging when we break our commitments, God sustains his. And what if that was enough? What if when we break our commitments and God's sustaining him, the yes of Christ is enough for us? Paul applies the gospel to his change of plans with the Corinthians to say the gospel has never been about you keeping your promises. It's always about God keeping his. And we fail to recognize just how profound this grace is. Could it be throughout all of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is actually commanding us to do something that we could not do without his gracious help? You Listen, if you break your commitments, you're going to need God's help. If you keep your commitments, you're going to need God's help. Some of you at this point in the sermon, you want a religious answer. You want me to tell you this is the three ways to, make, to keep your, your commitments. But listen so carefully, that would be to ignore the command of Christ who told us not to make them in the first place. Jesus' word was, don't swear an oath. Be careful what you say. Reserve your words because you're going to need God's gracious help throughout your life. And whether you keep your commandments or break them, you're going to need God's grace. Have you been unfaithful? God is faithful. Have you bailed? God has not bailed on you. Have you broken relationships? God has sustained his relationship for you. Some of you need to hear this this morning. See, when we realize God's yes to us is so profound, it frees us, listen, it frees us from having to keep a ledger of like, I said this and I'll do this and I will be a robot of commitment. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. See, we'd be back where they were if we just got to that point at the end of the sermon. No, no, no. 
We're not here to keep a ledger of I will do this and then I, I do it. Instead, because Christ's yes is so consistent and, and perfect to us, it frees us to develop consistent and humble communication instead of ignorant commitments. That's the best thing we can do. See, we forget Paul in that letter, it's a letter. Do you know what he's doing? He's updating them. He's developing consistent and humble communication with the Corinthians instead of making ignorant commitments. The best thing you can do as a faithful Christian today is to talk to people, loop them in, and remain humble. For my brothers and sisters to where this weighs in a deeper place, where you're suffering in a much deeper place with these commitments, it might start with you developing humble and honest communication with yourself. Every one of my friends, I went, I went through a brief time of, 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 of some anxiety. I have friends that have chronically suffered with anxiety. And you know what they all tell me? Man, it started with telling myself. I got anxiety. I have depression. And then making that commitment and that communication to others. As opposed to just making these, lofting these commitments. Using these words to try to get out from under. You know what it's going to have to come down to? It's going to have to come down to us actually talking to one another asking forgiveness, making sure we know we're wrong. You see, like what Joel told me when I was caught in a lie, all he wanted from me was for me to honestly communicate with him and say, Joel, I fail. I'm sorry. I didn't communicate. I didn't didn't let them know. We're going to have to confess when we're wrong. We're going to have to apologize, humbly admit our mistakes. I know I said I would be there. I'm so sorry I couldn't make it. This is what happened. I know I said I would be there, but right now, honestly, the anxiety is too much for me. I need to stay at home. I wish I could be there. This is a part of my life. It's very difficult. That confession, that opening up will both free you from feeling guilty of this command, receive the grace of Jesus, and here's what I I know in Christian community. You'll receive the grace from others. You see, what Joel was giving me an opportunity to do when he asked me on that Monday, he wasn't giving me an opportunity to correct myself. I'd already failed. He was giving me the opportunity to receive grace from him. And here's the good thing about Joel. It's the same thing about Jesus. Even though I failed him that day, he still showed me grace. That's what God is here to do for you. God is here to show you grace. Which is why finally, faithfulness, as we continue to do this, faithfulness in keeping our commitments, it builds our character. Faithfulness in keeping our commitments will eventually build build our character. As we keep our commitments, it will build our character. But right under this, write this, if you're taking notes, unfaithfulness builds it too. It's just your response to your unfaithfulness. What could I have done when I was caught in unfaithfulness? I could have restacked the deck, reorganized the cards, tried to manipulate circumstances and blame other people. That's what we do when we're caught in a lie. Try to blame other people, restack the deck, start to make sure people are getting the heat instead of us. But I had no way out. And I'm grateful to God I had no way out. Because sometimes when you have no way out, that's the only way in to God's grace. And when you're unfaithful, God is faithful to you. And so the It stands before us today as a church. What kind of person is God making you to be? A person whose yes is yes, and their no is no? 
their open and honest communication and confession and repentance is involved? Or are you keeping the ledger like the Pharisees and manipulating circumstances so as to appear pure before God and friends? Friends, you are already pure in Christ. You have the freedom now. God has not given us any command. Listen very carefully. God has not given you any command you can obey on your own. We must leave today knowing that God's power is at work within us to obey this very command. Only can we say yes, and only can we keep our commitments so long as God is working and active in our lives. Would you stand with me? I'm going to bless us as we go and ask God to help us. You can close your eyes and bow your heads. Heavenly Father, for us at Awakening, help us receive your yes. God, we are weak. God, we are insufficient. God, we manipulate the truth. We're deceivers. You are the true one, the one who has provided for us everything we need in Christ Jesus. And my prayer as we go out, Lord, is that we would be a humble people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. And when we fail to do so, we would receive your yes from Jesus. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.